Good evening, everyone. I'm Peggy Clark with the Aspen Institute, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to the opening in the series, Women in the Rise. This is the Alternative Ideas Fest. This is the one that's going to be really fun. We have a fantastic panel for you here today. And I'm really delighted to announce, um, in fact, quite honored to uh, have this be the debut of the Ascend program at the Aspen Institute, which is run by Ann Mosley, Nisha Patel, and Sarah Haidt. Uh, this is the first time that the Institute has really focused on the issue of women and girls in poverty. It's quite a shift for the Institute. They are pioneering and focusing on some of the most innovative ways of looking at women and children. So we've assembled a fantastic group for you here this evening. I hope everyone just relaxes and gets comfortable. We actually have a bar right outside, so please make yourself comfortable. <laughs> this is the evening. I know it's been a beautiful day at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and these are going to be the evenings that are about women, and we hope this will be a provocative and inspiring conversation. I'm really delighted to welcome um, our moderator today, who is Michelle Martin. Michelle, you probably don't know this, but I love your show. Uh, Michelle was the yes, exactly. She's the founder and the host of Tell Me More, and we always want to hear more. And there, she is really known for this very distinctive way she brings to NPR the sense of intimacy and the sense of deep reach into issues that many are, are afraid to talk about. And so we really appreciate what you've done. Um, uh, Michelle is an award, Emmy Award winning journalist. She's been with ABC. She covered such things as September 11th. She, September, she covered the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas, remember those earrings, <laughs> and many other things. And she has a great listening ear, people say, and a great sense of asking really difficult questions. So um, before we get started, I would be remiss if I didn't say that some of the people sitting up here on this panel are some of my favorite people in the world. I want to particularly say, uh, David, you've been magnificent to be at the Institute. All of your sessions have been fantastic. Anne Mosley is the executive director of the Ascend program. She just flew in. She is an exceptional person who has really led the way with head and heart for new focus and new ways of looking at women in poverty in the U.S., and I'm delighted that she's a part of the Aspen tribe. We will try to, uh, try to rise to uh, all of the hopes that you have for what you want to do there, Anne. Melissa Bradley of the Tides Foundation, and we have another colleague who's you have to introduce, so thank you for that. But uh, this is a really fabulous group of people, and we're so delighted you've joined us this evening. Thank you so much. Okay. We'll say nice things about you, Joan. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome, and thank you all for coming. Um, how are you? Just, I'm just getting a sense of the room. Is everybody still? You good? Everybody's there? Okay, okay. All right. I think that's a barely here. Yeah. Uh oh. I wasn't sure it was such a great idea to let people know there was a bar out there. But, but uh, we, we want this to be a conversation that includes all of us, or as many of us as care to participate in the conversation. So we're going to talk up here for a little bit, but then we really would love it if, you'd, if you would join us as you are able and interested to, to do so. So I'm going to start by introducing our, our folks, and I will start over here. Uh, Joan Dempsey is a senior vice president for Booz Allen. She leads Booz Allen's intelligence business in central Maryland. She was uh, formerly in the Department of Homeland Security. She served as Deputy Director of Central Intelligence for Community Management, and I also want to say thank you for your service because she spent, in one form or another, 25 years in the Navy. That's right. That's right. Thank you. 
Melissa Bradley, thank you for your service in a different way because you have six kids. (laughs) (laughs) I think she takes the crown. I think maybe someone... She is the CEO of Tides, which is a values-based social change platform that leverages... You're going to have to tell us what this means. Leverages individual and institutional leadership and investment to positively impact local and global communities. Okay. And then before that, she was managing director of New Capitalist. That I do understand. It leverages human and financial and social capital to invest in uh, institutions and things that help people, lift people out of poverty, right? Okay. So tell us a little bit more about Tides when, when we come to you. And you've also heard from Ann Mosley. She's executive director at Ascend at the Aspen Institute. It's also about lifting uh, families, women and children, through women and children, out of poverty. And before that, she was at the uh, W.K. Kellogg Foundation and former president of the Washington Area Women's Foundation. She's an executive on loan from Kellogg to the Aspen Institute. So thank you for what you're doing. You could tell us more about what you're doing. And David Leonhardt is economics columnist for the New York Times. He writes the economic scene columns for the Times as well as contributes to the Times Sunday Magazine. I'm sure this is a name that all of you know. And congratulations on that 2011 Pulitzer Prize for commentary. And I'm going, to, I'm going to start us off with the contrarian view. What's the problem? We had two, we have, what, 14, 15 CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who are women. Most of them are American. We finally have an African-American woman CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We have, what, 18% of the Congress are women, which is not a fabulous number, but this is one of the countries that doesn't have quotas, unlike many of the countries that have larger percentages of women in, in legislative bodies. We have, you know, a woman who came very close to becoming the nominee for her party for President of the United States and a woman who was the vice presidential nominee. We have two women already in the mix for the presidential nominee. What's the problem? Joan? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for starting with me, I think. Um, As the only one up here who's who's in a a for-profit role, I work in a company that Uh, primarily uh, does business with the U.S. government, and uh, we have some challenges associated with uh, hiring, with finding people who, in my world, do classified work. They have to be U.S. citizens. Uh, We need people that are college-educated. We need uh, a high proportion of people who have uh, science and technology or engineering or mathematics degrees. And frankly, we have a very hard time finding young women coming out of our educational institutions who have those qualifications and who can uh, come to work and stay with us. And I see two problems in this regard. Uh, One is getting them uh, into those education programs that make them competitive for the kinds of work that we do. And frankly, the problem is I think that a lot of our economy in the future is going to be fueled by those advanced technology uh, programs. And we can't afford to not have women represented in those programs in the same uh, representation that they have as as part of the workforce. Secondly, we have another problem, uh, somewhat unrelated, but nonetheless, it's a a compelling problem, and that's that we have women self-selecting out of the workforce when they hit their most productive part of their career. It also happens to be their reproductive period of life, and it is too damn hard to try to sustain and build a career when you are sustaining and building a family. 
we have to find a solution to that problem. Melissa Brown, what's the problem? Well, I think that there's a couple problems. Um, from my perspective, the problem is that, that I, we pride ourselves as a country on equality and democracy. And that doesn't exist for women. It certainly doesn't exist for women of color. Um, I think we have a couple of issues that are economic and political and some that are actually self-motivated or, or the lack of self-motivation. When you think about policy, we've had the successes of Title IX, but the regression of family leave acts that haven't been fully offered to women and replacement pay when they go on those reproductive years. We've had welfare reform that came in and devastated communities, recognizing that women were the primary recipients of that, and not because they wanted to, but things like the cliff effect, where they tried to advance, they ended up falling off the cliff, they're not able to do that. You've got over 90% of households that are managed by women, and only a quarter of them actually are able to manage their own assets. You've got women that are over 46% of the workforce, but making more than half of them making less than $8 an hour. So from an economic perspective, when we think about where we are in the economy, we think about that the majority of women are going to college, but they also have the highest unemployment rates, that could actually solve the job crisis that we have. When you think about who's managing our households, we're setting a horrible example for women and girls when women are not able to be self-sufficient, aren't able to take care of themselves. We have a missed opportunity when you think about women in business. You have over uh, 35% of women that are employed by business outrank Fortune 500 combined, but only 4% of venture capital dollars go to them. You have serious structural barriers in equity that could indeed flip the script on the economic recession and regression that we're, that we're experiencing. You also then begin to shift the focus and the self-esteem of young women of what they're able to see. And what I would finally say, though, is I also think that this is not just about them versus us. There's a piece here that I think there's been a history of oppression from who knows 1700s to now that I think has not allowed women to be able to find their voice. And so you have these barriers that exist that are imposed by the federal government, some by corporations, but some that are self-imposed. And I think that we need to be able to think about how do you reduce those barriers so that women can indeed find their voice and that families, whatever they look like, societies, civil society, communities, can indeed thrive. When you have the Boston Consulting Group talking about in 2028, women will increase their income by $5 trillion and they will actually begin to hopefully make as much money as, as men, you begin to think about the same similar analogy of people of color who are marginalized and now becoming the mainstream. What is this country going to look like if we don't invest in truly who will be the future? It's a disgrace of what we've done, and if we think about becoming competitive on a global level and just amongst our own communities, we have got to begin to invest in women. Okay. All right. Um, well, I think building on Joan and Melissa's comments, I would um, offer up four other pieces to kind of put into the, the tapestry of the conversation. First, I think one is a challenge and an opportunity is we've had so much excitement and momentum building around the power of investing in women to build communities, democracies, economies outside of our own boundaries and our own borders of the United States. When we talk about bringing that into the United States, about investing in women to build families, to build economies, um, schools, what, any institution, that political will stops. There's skid marks when you bring it into the U.S., and I think there's a lot of issues around race, a lot of issues around class, but it's a huge miss for us as a country not to carry that forward. The second piece is progress is flat at best, and this is something, there's a lot of discussion about the, oh, the, the growing numbers, the pendulum swing of women going to college, four-year, two-year, higher ed at much higher rates than we've seen in the past. Yes, that is true, and that is a great thing in terms of the enrollment numbers. What we're also seeing are still huge pay disparities, and they're not just for women who've been in the workforce for three years. Still today, there are recent studies that show anywhere from five dollars to $10,000 gaps for community college graduates, let alone from a four-year institution. It's playing out every day. And um, 
and, and even if you look at some of the economic leadership, if we go at the rate that we're going in terms of senior corporate leadership at um, sort of CEO and board, um, boards of directors, we will not come close to parity until 2075. Plays out in a similar thing in politics. So we should not be sitting comfortable at all right now. Second, third is we need to mainstream this conversation and engage men. This is something I think both the poverty community, the women's community, there's a lot of people who've been working really hard. We need to burst this. This needs to be a much bigger conversation. We need to cast a much deeper shadow. And I think Nicholas Kristoff and his wife, um, Cheryl Dewin, who wrote the book, Holding Up Half the Sky, and just his power of his columns, and we have our new friend too, um, um, to really take this conversation out in a stronger, thoughtful, deep way. And then lastly, there are just not enough resources. We need to have the will to have the results. And there's countless examples I could share with you later on, but even coming from the Kellogg Foundation, the fifth largest in the, in the world, um, it was an uphill battle to talk about why investing in women. Our focus was the 30 million kids living in poverty. The vast majority of them are growing up in a single parent household, which is headed by a woman. What's the strongest lever you can see to make a two-generation strategy? David, one of the, thank you for that. Thank you. Everybody needs to get there. <laughs> David, you, you uh, helped open the festival with a big idea. Right. Do you want to just start there for those who missed it? Absolutely. Um, uh, so my big idea was the notion that we've made much less progress against what I called momism than we have against sexism. And that if you look at um, the most careful work that tries to measure sexism, it suggests that sexism remains a problem in our society, which we shouldn't need studies to know, but it helps to have the studies, right? Um, uh, some of the most careful work has been done by Fran Blau and Larry Kahn, who are at Cornell. And what they do is they try to, they, they've looked over time and they try to take identical workers. So they, there's a long list of what they control for, and I brought it. They try to control for occupation, education, experience, race, and labor union status. And when they do that, they see that in the 1970s, women made about 82% as much as men. By the 19, early 1990s, it had come up to 91%. Since then, although the most recent data isn't in, it doesn't really seem to have moved at all. And so to me, that says two things. One, we've made a lot of progress, right? We're up to 91%. Some people think if you, you're able to control for more things, it would actually come above 91%. You'd get to 95 or 96. But we're not at 100, right? And so, so to me, the, the two problems are that we still have this what I would term traditional sexism, right? In which two identical people, you've got the man making more. But then you've also got this discrimination that, that pretty much everyone here has talked about, in which we discriminate against parents. And as much as we might like to think that that really would fall equally on men and women, um, it doesn't. <laughs> we are probably a long, long way from any society in which it does. And so the fact that we discriminate against parents really means we discriminate against women. And what that means is that even if we get these careful studies showing that 91 or 95, the pay gap's down to 9% or 5%, that's not the way the real world works because um, women don't tend to have the same experience as men in large part because they're much more likely to take time off. They're much more likely to leave at 5 o'clock um, instead of saying, staying till 6.30. And so this does enormous damage and it's why. I mean, there are 500 companies in the Fortune 500. There are 15 with female CEOs. I mean, that is a dreadfully low percentage. It's why so many of, uh, such a high share of our phenomenally successful women are women who don't have children relatively to our phenomenally successful men. And so to me, we really, 
we, we sort of have a two-front battle here. We still have this battle against traditional sexism. We haven't made the kind of legislative progress that we did in past decades, right? We haven't done more things on leave. Um, but we also have this problem um, that, it, that is a little bit different, that is more like momism. I want to pick up on something that we talked about. Melissa and Jen, I'm going to start with you on this question. Because each of you raised the question of both structural barriers and self-selection. And Joan, you were telling me this really interesting story about how when you were at the Pentagon, that I think none of the senior flag officers had children who were women, the women, women, the women in right. the 90s. Right. Because, and I was telling you about a very interesting conversation I had with, don't tase me, Phyllis Shafley, re recently, who has written a book with her niece, who said, damn straight, that's exactly what you should be doing, is self-selecting out of these positions that compromise your ability to take care of your family in the way that she thinks you should. And so I wanted to ask you, structural barriers and self-selection, which is more powerful? I want to ask each of you these questions. Uh, that's, a, that's a hard answer to, to come up with uh, definitively. I, as, as we were talking, Michelle, I did an a informal poll. I was in the Pentagon for 17 years, knew most of the senior military officers. Uh, for the last few years I was there, most of the women. So this wasn't a scientific poll, but uh, none of the women had children. They couldn't meet the career requirements, get promoted, have the jobs that they had to have to get to that level and raise a family. Just wasn't possible. Um, it, and so they made that choice, and I'm glad that they did make that choice and that they were willing to be pathfinders but is that really the choice that we want people to have to make? Um, so I think there are both institutional issues, but then there's also the structural issues that are probably harder to deal with. Um, I, I certainly don't have solutions, but I think the solutions are discoverable. I think we can fix this problem. David talked about, um, and I think Ann did as well, we had, in previous decades, we had made progress. I know we've referenced Title IX here. When the, when the bill, when the Education Amendments Act was passed in 1972, there were about 295,000 young high school women in this country who were uh, participating in high school sports, organized sports in their high schools. Uh, about 17 or 18 years later, there were 2.4 million. That was the direct result of Title IX. Now, interestingly, Title IX in that bill as enacted doesn't require for equal programs, equal access to, to sports programs for women. That was added by HEW as a policy when it enacted the bill and sent out direction to federal agencies about how and what they could fund in, um, in federally funded sports programs if they didn't include women. So I think while it's not a panacea, I think there are solutions that combine law, policy, and the judiciary because the, that bill had to stand the judicial test to make sure that it was constitutional and legal. Um, again, not a panacea, but I think there is the potential for some solutions to some of these issues. Melissa, you want to take that? Yeah, I, th I think that they're, they're both bad, um, but I think the self-selection is allowing the perpetuation of the problem. So, and I can say this based on just experience. I think you know, the history of, of, of inequality has clearly been legislated in many cases. And then it has caused kind of our own self-imposed glass ceiling. 
And what happens is when, that, then when we then cannot articulate our own power and demand our own equality, then nobody else is going to demand it for us. And, and, I, and I'll give a couple of examples. I, I was part of a, I was a founding board member of a group called the Woodhull Institute for Ethical Leadership, with people like Naomi Wolf and Erica Jung, who don't have problems finding their voice. <laughs> but we would bring uh, 100 women a year to you know, this fabulous estate up in upstate New York. And we would kind of say, well, what's, you know, what's the challenge that you have? And many of them would say, I don't know how to ask for a raise. Um, I don't know how to stand up for myself. And we found that it was a balance of both not having the technical skills, like the financial skills, because they've opted out of those things, because they've heard they're not good at them, and then just the inability to then be able to overcome what has been put upon them. And I think what happens then, so it ties, you know, we basically are a philanthropic partner for high net worth individuals and nonprofit organizations to promote social change across the world. What we found is that what, then when we in our work, and gender equity is one of our top four issues of, of this for this year, is that we find the challenge then to, to help people understand to make the investment. Because there are plenty of examples internationally, but then it becomes a cost issue. So when you think about you know, making adjustments in a food program and how that then solves you know, poverty or, or malnutrition, or you think about training in, in, in midwifery, and then all of a sudden you don't have mm -hmm. the, the number of, of births, uh, babies, death at birth, you know, those investments, you know, are kind of almost rounding errors for us. And so I think what has happened is you have, you have three things. You have one, women, or at least not enough, who are willing to stand up on a daily basis and say, I deserve better. I don't want to be second. I want to be first. And why can't I? Then you have the economics piece where we do regularly have examples internationally, but the economies of scale are so different. And then you have the opportunity cost here in the States of, do I invest in women? Do I invest in families? And so not making any judgments, but Kellogg made a choice. I'm going to invest in kids, and maybe I'll help their, I'm overstating, maybe I'll help their parents. Um, but it shouldn't be an opportunity cost. And then I think there are those structural barriers, so when, even when we have the Lead Better Act, the reality is that it, it, on average, women make 77 cents on the dollar right. of men. African-American women make 64 cents. Latinas, 54 cents. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman in financial services, mm -hmm. you make 63 cents. And, so, and, and we know what it's like to break into financial services, so it's not like they're dumber or they're less prepared. They've already made the sacrifice to be at a J.P. Morgan others to give up those kids, and they're still not making that amount of money. So you've got the, the, the legislative, you've got the self-imposed fear, and you've got kind of the corporate structures that continue to kind of allow us to make these opportunity costs without recognizing the long-term impact. I'm going to pick up on each of those things. And you know one of the things that fascinated me, uh, one of the things you just said is how this conversation is mainstream when we talk about development, right? It's become mainstream to talk about microfinance, investing in women, you know, human rights when it comes to women. And, but, but that conversation is not mainstream in the United States. Do you have any idea why that is? Well, I think when you look where it's more comfortable or more popular in the United States, it's on the smaller conversation. So it's on microenterprise. It's not on the $5 trillion that the women control in consumer purchasing power or the 80% decisions they make and how those marketing dollars then translate into sort of real power corporate practice. A great example would be Walmart. How many Walmart moms are there out shopping in Walmart, being employed by Walmart? And then you have one of the, like, the largest discrimination cases, which was not um, recognized by the Supreme Court. The women's discrimination was not upheld. Well, Walmart was upheld. And, it, and whether, you know, not a Supreme Court justice, there's enough going on there to be a real problem. And we're just not seeing the larger economic issues, the broader issues um, being picked up at the same level and the same bit of passion. And so whether it's playing out politically, so even things like family leave, which when it's even passed, um, it's not still able to 
apply it, to get it. In California, it was just passed. I was just talking to a friend who was the communications director for the National Partnership for Women and Families, the advocacy group that helped pass that law. She tried to actually take advantage of family <laughs> leave. It took her five months with all of her tenacity to be able to get that. What does that mean for someone who's a low-income mom working a daily job? And so I, I just think there, there's just... Um, people are comfortable when it's in, in smaller conversations, but when you're talking about bigger power, you're talking about political office, you're talking about cabinet secretaries, even, you know, even this president, when we look at just how it sort of plays out at times, you don't see the women in the front lines also getting as much attention many times as the men. And I just think there's a lot of power analysis. And then just quickly on the global front, we have seen a lot of progress on the social indicators. The indicators that are stuck when you look at some of the World Economic Forum's reports that just came out this year, where we see no progress, it's below 10%, is when you look at political office and economic power. You can see the other ones go, but this is really about um, a struggle for the power. David, can you pick up on that? Because I'm remembering when um, Rahm Emanuel was the chief of staff, was newly appointed as chief of staff. And remember that the president talked about making the White House family friendly. He says, yeah, it's family friendly for one family, the president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, true that. True that. I mean, what, how much of this conversation is really about the world of work and the expectations that people still have about the world of work? I mean, we talked about the fact that there's a, a column in New York, in, was it the New York Times or the LA Times, about women doctors leaving and how what a very large number of women doctors leave the profession or go part-time and what a serious impact this is. We actually have a shortage of doctors right. in this country. Uh, you know, maybe not where a lot of us live, but we do in fact have it. So how much of this do you think is really about the world of work and the fact that that world has not changed? And there's really very little pressure to make a change. There isn't a lot of pressure to make a change. I, I do think we should be careful about what the ultimate goal here is. Mm -hmm. To me, the ultimate goal is not giving everyone uh, the freedom to work 70 hours a week. <laughs> That's not the ultimate goal. That should be part. The goal should be that if men, men and women should have an equally easy time working 70 hours a week if they should so choose. But to come back to the self-selection point that you made, um, I don't think we should view it as a failure if someone decides they don't want to work in the White House mm -hmm. because they want to see their children. <laughs> I, I, think what the, I think we are so far from being in a situation in which we can know how much of it is self-selection and how much of it is not that I don't even think we have to worry so much about that today because we can do so much more to make companies more family-friendly and to give people more opportunities to have both do work that is not going to lead to the corner office and do work that may lead to the corner office that's equal for men and women. But, but one of the objections I've had to some of the groups that have done good work pushing for workplace equality, um, I've had a back and forth with Catalyst about this, is I feel like their one goal is to make it as easy as possible for people to work ridiculous hours. And I think part of this discussion needs to be saying it is a good thing to have extremely talented men and women taking care of their children for some number of hours a week. That should be part of this. Part of this should be developing career ladders so that men and women can both do that. And, and quite honestly, figuring out ways to push more men to do it, right? Because if we okay. don't, that's not going to happen. OK, well, we need to get real about how that really is. And I don't mind putting my stuff out here. Um, for for years, no, I really don't. Because for years, I, in order to accommodate, you know, my babysitter had four children. And she's finally said, look, I can't take it. And so I hired another person to help her, okay? Because, and I said, okay, this is how we're going to do. And for years, I split that job, and it was living hell. 
The paperwork, to file paperwork for two employees, the, the social security, double, unemployment insurance, double. And I did it because I'm a stand-up girl, right? And I'm trying to be the change. But, <laughs> it's expensive. but it was expensive, it was nerve-wracking, and time-consuming, and hard. And, I am a, and, and, and don't tell me that there aren't businesses all over the country. I'm not a business, I'm just me. But you're, you're a dry cleaners, right? You're a dry cleaners. You're a, an art gallery. You're a what? What do you all do? <laughs> and tell, tell me, real estate, real estate right? And so what's the, what's the answer? You could fill out my paperwork for me. <laughs> I bet you're really good at math. And bad at paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Anne, help me out. No, well, I think a couple things. Um, first, there has to be a piece where, um, and I want to start with a point that uh, Melissa made about the cliff effect and make sure we actually all know what that means. How many people know what the cliff effect is? Okay, I just want to, I want to ground us in the cliff effect because I think this is the economic reality of what it means to sort of not be, to make it in the United States, because I'm, I'm in your club, and I just I, I just kept paying more, and I just, it was just all sorts of stuff. It's, it's um, a vicious cycle. But and we talk a lot in America about the working poor. Um, I'll personalize this. I had um, a treasured nanny off Banco, and I had my first child. I've worked on women's and kids' policies for about 20 years. you think I had never talked about a baby in my life or seen one when my daughter was born. We had an amazing woman who came and worked with us. Um, fair wages, stand-up girl, was leading the Washington Area Women's Foundation. Of course, I was going to do everything just so and just right. And just amazingly, as she would go up, and she had health care, and she got raises over the years, as she moved up, and salary go from whether it was $12 to $15 to $18 to $22, all the other supports that helped her get through her day, children's health insurance, child care subsidies, um, access to different schools, different forms she played when she, did, when she had to fill out to go to a charter school um, um, voucher system. But the formula in the United States, when you start to work your way out of poverty, our policy structure takes away the legs of the chair that make it possible to get to the end. Yeah. And I just think that piece is something we really have to take apart because you have a lot of women and men who are working hard, doing the right thing, doing the American dream, doing the bootstrap thing, and it's set up to not work. And I think this is a narrative in the American culture where we we just, we're not real about this. Mm. And, and, and the other piece of this is, um, for many cases, um, the woman who helped us care for our children happened to be a single mother. She was taking care of three kids. So I knew every day I came late, she was going home late. The, the, the effect, the economic reality right now, it's very hard to have a family that's doing okay with one breadwinner. It's probably okay for a lot of us here at the Aspen yeah. Ideas Festival, but we've got some, we don't have a middle class. It's not evaporating, and you can you probably fill in some numbers and say we have a few. But I really, I'm, I grew up in Pittsburgh, a middle class kind of a town. I fundamentally, we're moving, losing our middle class, and I just think we have to understand the formulas that real people are living and struggling, and they're doing the right thing. That's fine. I'm going to, go ahead. I was going to, I want to open it up over here, but I did want to ask one more, Melissa one more question is, how do we make this not the boys versus the girls? Because one of the things that I think really disturbs people of color and why they resist participating yeah. in these kinds of conversations mm -hmm. is they, they don't want it to be the boys versus the girls. I mean, can you name one white woman in this country who would change places with one black man? 
I can think of one. Well, I can think of one I white see woman jumping up and down who would change places with one particular black man. <laughs> but, but I mean, really. But I mean, but you understand what I'm saying. And so, how do we make this conversation not? Because, because again, like p- government policies that many African Americans feel destroyed marriage in yes, the black community, that's right. yes, that's right. and made all you know assets. And we can argue about it, and I'm sure there's all kinds of interesting conversations on both sides. But, but many people feel that basically empowered women at the expense of men and destroyed right. the ability. So, so how do we make it not the boys versus the girls? I what? think there are two. Go ahead. Oh, what? Go ahead. What? What? Boys versus the girls, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are two. I can people. see. No, no. Okay. I'm going to lose She's this owning one. her power enough <laughs> to step in. I think there are two quick answers to that, right? The, the one is, is it's about kids, ultimately, who are both boys and girls, right? And so solving these issues really is incredibly important for children. <laughs> and, and, and it's incredibly important for boy children and for girl, girl children. And the second thing is, I think we should tap into the larger American ideal of fairness and equality. And we can all tick off a hundred million ways we don't live up to that ideal, right? And we don't. But we make progress. Look what happened this week, right, in my home state. Um, We make progress in all sorts of ways. You know, uh, my grandfather fled his country because of anti-Semitism. My father experienced anti-Semitism on a regular basis. I have experienced so little anti-Semitism that I should count as a minority in no way at all. Right? In no way at all. If you look at over the last 200 years, the kind of progress we make on these issues, we should demand that the society live up to its ideals on these issues. And when we do that and when we fight and keep fighting, we usually make progress. Melissa, do you want to jump I, in before say, we go? And, and part point? of this is, just, is changing the conversation. I mean, this is great, but this is here because there was no conversation before. So the challenge the next year is, you know, how do you then have that boy-girl conversation? I mean, how do you have a conversation about the future of America, the future of our children? It, it's really easy for us, particularly in this country, to say, let's marginalize and, and put people in silos. Let's talk about the African-Americans, let's talk about the Latinos, let's talk about... And, and it makes it easy because there's, in capitalism, the competition of resources, it's easier if it's us against them. But I think that what we have to do is embrace that America is now a diverse population in all forms or fashion. And my family is one of them. Right? So there's six kids, right? there's one that's adopted, there's some that are multiracial, Japanese, African-American, Native American. It's a gay family. We live in Bethesda, Maryland, and we're Jewish. <laughs> You're not going to get that anywhere else. And so, but I think that, but, but I think that that shift of this kind of blending of families, this blending of values that is forcing us to say, we can't just continue to single people out, but we really are one America. Well, then that changes the conversation. Well, one, at one point, we do have to bring it back to policy, though, because I think people mm-hmm. would yeah. like to walk away with some concrete ideas about what exactly, what exactly. Because, Anne, I really understand what you're saying is that it's, we like to say we're, everybody thinks they're middle class in this country. Maybe three people we think they're not. We all identify. They do. I mean, but, but what, what does that mean really? And what really do we do? Michelle, before, I know you want to get to the I audience, to, and it's important. Well, but I think the audience wants to get to the audience. I think when, when you okay. talk about policy, I do think while women have made a lot of progress, both from an education standpoint, there are a lot more women in the workforce, we still have a disproportionate number of women in service industries, and we talked about several examples here tonight. 
we have to get women, and I think the whole science and technology, engineering and mathematics track is part of this, and that's where policy comes in. We have to get women into those kinds of programs in much larger numbers. And so if you want to start talking about deconstructing policy issues, that's a great one to start with. Okay. Let's, let's open it up. Let's open it up. Let's get as many as we can, and I'll just work around the room. We'll, we'll, we'll come to as many as we can while we can. Sue, you want to start? Hi. Sue Goodwin, she's the executive producer of Talk of the Nation. That's, I was on her show today. I'm just giving her props. That's why I have to do it. Sorry. Uh, there's an emerging narrative that I would love to hear your reaction to. It gets a little bit at girls, uh, women versus men, but that women are succeeding at the expense of men. Uh, women, girls are doing better in high school. Undergraduate colleges are hungry to get boys in. We've got more women in law school now than men, right? We have an economy that many people would say is favoring the skills of women over men, which you could deconstruct that in a lot of different ways. You have a new book by Kay Heimowitz called Manning Up. Basically, her point is that by delaying marriage and parental responsibilities, men are not becoming men. And so I, I hear this narrative beginning that you know women are stepping up and men are losing. That's a good point. That's a good question. And who wants to take that? And do you want to? Take I'll do that? an opener and let yeah. these guys fill it in with probably better answers. But I think this this is an emerging narrative, and I think one that I want to point out in the grand scheme of what just let's just go with what has been America with all of our history. This is a moment in time. For all the, all the hundreds of years before that, we weren't worried about womaning up. I mean, like, seriously, this is deep. And at the time that we're also seeing more women enter into the educational pipeline, for the first time we're seeing the value of a college degree start to shrink. I mean, this is, this is we need to pay attention to this. And I'm not boys versus girls. I mean, I think this, this is, my, I stay up at night fearing for that because it's on your question you were just asking, is I think from the women's movement perspective, the lines along class and race and generation can be very divisive. And from a women's community, white women and women of color, how there's better understanding and appreciation for different lives, different paths, different policy implications. I mean, what's also happening where I'm, I'm focusing with um, my colleagues on the Ascend program, every day thinking about parents and kids, and a lot of this piece about the mommyism or the parent piece, when one in four kids in the US is growing up in a single parent family. One in four kids, a new report from the OECD. Generational game changer. Overwhelmingly, like 95%, if not more, that's women. There's just, and I'm just like waiting for the next narrative of that to pop. And I just, I just think we um, have to be really careful to keep it in perspective. And at the same time, my earlier point, you're seeing that narrative go. You're not seeing any changes. It's flatlining or hanging on pay, on power. So I just... Um, uh, oh, gosh, this is not working for me. But um, <laughs> I, anyway, well, um, do you, are you dying to jump in on that, or can we just have Let's one answer? For, okay, keep, who? I saw this lady here. I have a question about um, girls growing up studying technology, math, science, engineering. And my daughter just went into college and was ready to go into engineering, but went into a curriculum that was so structured without art or 
language or any of the other things that she had been expecting that she said, that's half of me. What am I supposed to do? And so I wonder, is there any option or is there any vision for schools to start, if they want to include women, to include that other part of them? That is such a great question, if I may, Michelle. I, I work um, with a staff of about 2,000 people. Overwhelmingly, it's engineers. And I go home every night exhausted because I am not an engineer, and they just wear me out. <laughs> I mean, it is tough for me to communicate with them. It's tough for me to understand them. And we are constantly uh, struggling to achieve some kind of balance. But I will tell you honestly that achieving that balance is extremely powerful for the business because I bring, and the other folks like me in, in the cybersecurity business that we lead, we bring a dimension to problems that the engineers don't always come to. They come to a very um, mechanized solution on things, which is important. But when you roll in with those soft science ideas, it's, it's just a much more uh, satisfying approach to any problem that we work but, on. But in don't that you space. sometimes wonder whether part of the cur curriculum is structured that way as a gatekeeping mechanism to keep girls out? Well, I mean, because there was a very interesting study at the Naval Academy where the number of men in the humanities dropped as the number of women at the academy rose. So let's so, change it. If, so if that's the way it was structured, let's change it. I mean, that's, that's something that I think we could do. We could take on that could kind you, of... Could your daughter go and say that? I mean, do you think you could go and say, what, what's up with that? I mean, engineers still need to speak English, right? Or yeah. whatever. Well, I think you know. she would challenge it, but, but I think All right, I know there's a college president in here somewhere. Fix that, okay? <laughs> okay, there's a quick, I saw there was a... Can I throw in one quick thing? Yeah, go ahead. I think this, that's a great example of how there, this doesn't there, have there. to be boys against girls. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a failed math major, basically. I mean, I actually, it's, my degree says math major, but barely. Uh, and, uh, and I think... They always I, start admitting that after they get the Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of problem with our math and science education is that it is uh, too disconnected from reality. It should be intimately connected to reality. I loved math because of a second grade teacher I had who made me understand that it was basically a way to describe the world and who was a woman. Uh, and too much, particularly in college of math and science, is this esoteric stuff that feels like it has no connection to reality. I think women have less tolerance for things that have no connection to reality than men. But I think if we could improve that about math and science, we wouldn't just get more women in. We would improve math and science education. That Does is a theory with no data. Hello? Hannah? Mm -hmm. um, I'm really interested in the question you all brought up about you know, the, what happens mid-career to women. Mm -hmm. This comes up all the time, and it seems like such a difficult problem on both what women choose to do and what the American workplace culture is like, and it's really hard to get around, and yet economists have you know, quantified over and over again what they call the career cost of family. Um, and it has to do not necessarily with having children, because women who have children and don't take time off do fine. It's really just about taking time off. and so. Uh, or work less, and so have you guys ever seen a good program? I mean, just to get more kind of, have you seen anything, any of these flex time programs, you know, any of these sort of, I forgot what they call them in Deloitte, like custom, customized, what, I mean, have you seen any that actually do a good job? To, since it seems to me that really is the crux of the problem. Who, who would like to take that? 
Well, I think there's been good examples. I think yeah. the challenge has been it's been very sector specific. So I've seen it work very well in consulting practices. Um, I've seen it work very well at certain levels in corporate America. Um, oh, the, I'm sorry, job sharing. No, job job sharing. I mean, so I think what I would say is I think there's there's enough case studies, and I'm happy to. I mean, I know a few of very specific companies. The the challenge I think that we need to ask though is that they stop at a certain level and they're limited to specific levels of expertise. And so it doesn't exist for the CEO. It doesn't exist typically for a vice president. Um, and so what you're saying, you know, so again, what you're saying is you can do this, but there's gonna be a cap on what your potential could be. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we've certainly seen it. I mean, I've seen it where we are at Tides. Um, that sounds like that's pretty ominous. Um, that, you know, where, where people, within people within administrative positions, um, people within IT where there can be an easy pass off, we've certainly already done that. But I'm very clear that that means that certain levels will not get that opportunity and other divisions will not have that opportunity. I, I, I'm sorry. And oh, I, you go. I actually work for a company that has a very family friendly mm -hmm. se series of policies and it makes a tremendous difference. So one of them is that we've started um, implementing over the last few years is work where you live. Mm -hmm. And you can choose your work location uh, so that it's convenient to where you live, where your childcare is. We're very connected, so you, you're, not, uh, you're not tied to a mortar and stick place any longer. And this is a large company, it's 25,000 people. So if, if we can institute policies like that and be successful at it, then I think they ought to go into the mainstream. There's a there's a whole uh, list of things that you can do like that. Okay, and you want to jump really, in? And one I'm really going to go to the is, is I think Hannah, is you have I think two ways to look at what gets you economic stability and what allows economic mobility, and that's two different pieces about where you are. Um, in the structure of the company. I think if we're looking for simple solutions, if in each of those there was completely documented 50% participation of men and women, a lot of that stigma and culture would go away if it was job sharing, time off. If we saw just even a mid-management, the same amount of men take family leave as women, it'd be a different um, game. And I think when we look at the next generation, more younger men are interested. This young lady here. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sorry, can I just see where I'm going next? Who else? Okay, here, and I'll walk around this way. Okay, yeah, thank you. And we complain about them all the time. standing think, on the shoulders of people who are no longer here. But, but, but I also think whenever there's a crime emergency, what's the first thing that the police chief does? Cancel all leave. What is the first thing that, you know, or set up 12-hour shifts? And every time, so I'll just say it, I come from a family of police officers, six cops <laughs> in my family. And the first thing that occurs, okay, great, whose child care is now just blown to hell? I mean, so yes, it's true that on the one hand, millennials want meaning from their jobs, but that tends not to include bus drivers, Police officers, firefighters, mm -hmm. the kindergarten teachers. I mean, how many of you have a kindergarten teacher who's on a job share? Doesn't I've never met one. So I'm just saying, I think that's 
awesome for people who have creative jobs. And so, I mean, I, I've never met a talk show host who was part time. I, mean, I, God forbid, I tried to step off because I'd never get back in. But I do think I'd never get back reason. in. I mean, I know. Uh, I do think there's some reason for optimism right. here. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> I'd love to be that optimistic. I'm not sure I am, but. Um, uh, Claudia Golden, a Harvard economist who's done some of the best writing on this subject, um, uh, likes to point to a couple fields in which women have become a sufficient share of the occupation. These are high-skill occupations, but I think that's where this is going to start, that they've basically demanded and forced change. Um, veterinarian is one of them. My favorite is actually OBGYNs. Now, if ever there was an occupation, a profession, in which job sharing would seem like it would be difficult, isn't it OBGYN, right? You are working with someone for months and months and months and months, and then you deliver their baby, right? And you do this in the middle of the night. And what Claudia points out is that that profession has changed in part because women have demanded that it change. They have said, we are not going to get up at 3 in the morning just because we've been working with this person, our patient, the mother, for six months. We are going to organize in group practices. And they have figured out some really smart ways to make group practice the norm. And people are fleeing that sector. They are but fleeing that specialty. I, I'm, ne I'm less negative than that, yeah. than that op-ed. Oh, well, you haven't delivered well, birth lately. And, and you no, haven't no, delivered <laughs> lately, John. I'm sorry. Well, and, and again, I'm sorry. Help <laughs> go ahead. I just want to get everybody. Yeah. Go ahead, Anne. You can do you your know, thing. I just, I just think but that one I just piece that where, I'm sorry. I just need to know oh. where am I going next? This lady here and then over here. We're going to walk around. You're next, okay? And then this lady. But then Anne wants to do her thing. Go ahead. Well, I just I think one other resource out there is Joan Hastings at um, uh, um, Joan Williams of the Hastings um, School of Law has done some really interesting research that's getting at also new scheduling tools that takes technology and specifically looks at the jobs of um, more unionized and so forth, that having more online flexibility where, people, where workers can opt in on what they want, the schedule is out there. But workers can opt in through technology which ones they want and don't want to take, what hours, because men typically want more overtime. Women generally don't want overtime, and I'm speaking in sweeping generalizations. But giving choice and making it efficient and effective. So just one positive note. Okay. Ma'am? I'd be there. I would hesitate to speak because I'm not American. It's okay. Um, but um, uh, I, uh, I established, built, and sold very successful business, which um, because we developed systems for women lawyers to work at home. Mm. And my um, experience from um, uh, working with women is that, there, that we need to spend more time thinking about systems of care, care for children, care for uh, parents. Because women, and I think it's, it's linked to their education, want to invest in their children. Mm. And so until we find ways to give choice and professionalize caring so that it is of a sufficient level to make us feel good about what we do for our children and parents. There will always just be this barrier where, where are you from, if you don't mind my asking? Australia. Australia. I just want to say that's extremely important because yeah. the framing then is not just limited to those who are privileged. Because so far we've given examples of careers with privilege. I'm a CEO. I could job share. I could do whatever I want. But that doesn't exist for you know my mom, who's a domestic worker, when I was going to private school. So I think really framing this and having the right language or system of care, which is universal, as opposed to how's that job at a certain pay rate with certain types of clients going to allow me to job share. So I just think that's really important. But you, there is a cultural piece. I've always been fascinated by the fact that you have au pairs 
college graduates come here as au pairs from all over the world, but we don't have au pairs who come here from Iowa. I mean, what's up with, you know, you know there's no au pair, there's no tradition of the au pair in the United States from Iowa or from Washington State or from Washington, D.C., and why is that? I'm just fascinated by that. <laughs> Ma'am? Yeah. I'm going to keep going, and I think we're going to try to get this and then this. And this I'm sorry. Excuse me. Like, I should put my glasses back on. And then I want to make sure that we leave time for our panelists to have a closing thought. Hmm. 
Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone in particular you would wish to hear from on this? Okay. We don't have time for all of them, but who who wants it? I don't know. Most well, of this I'm, seems I mean, like I, you. Well, I, I mean, <coughs> the views I'm about to express are mine alone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think I, I think part of this is 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 that we have to expand and grow with where we are. And so, as someone who I you know give my props to the women's movement. I also have to give my problems to the civil rights movement. And then, no, there needs to be another movement. There needs to be the people's movement. Because I should not have been the first person to complete college in my family, uh, you know, in 1989. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of the problem is we have to move away again from these silos. And, and because success, if success is achieved by a few, then that's not where I think we need to be. And so I think that if there's a way to build upon the success of women's movement and, and the policy successes they have and organizing and the funding and be able to translate that and recognize here's some success, but here's where we need to go. I think part of the problem is that there has not been a reflection, an honest reflection of what that meant and how that actually stopped people from getting to think about what they could do around movements. And so I would love to see, you know, those dare I say, those folks who are part of women's movement to come back to the scene and say, what's the new movement? But part of the problem is movements. They start, they end. So does the funding, so does momentum, so does the policy. And then we go on to something else, and we're oftentimes recreating and restarting. And so to me, it's embarrassing that we're still having all these firsts, because again, we have allowed ourselves to be segregated, divide and conquer, as opposed to say, what are the ultimate goals we want for America, and how do we achieve those together? If you want to jump um, in on this, and then I'm gonna the lady next to you, and then the gentleman there, and I'm afraid we're gonna have to end it at that. Completely, com completely affirming what Melissa just said. I think she's the movement from the historical place going into the future. I think if we were looking at the future and just starting today's my first day on the planet, how would I start a movement? I think it's a brand new day, and I think it has to engage the top and the bottom, and it has to be incredibly technologically savvy. Things move more quickly, accountability, transparency. I, mean, I think on some of these systems issues, we need to put frames out, solutions. How do you make systems accountable to families? So at the end of the day, when we talk about family accountability or personal responsibility, that's just not all the accountability on the more vulnerable person in the population. We're using those accountability lenses also to play back to our systems and larger institutions and just and a hold there. Okay. This lady here, and then this gentleman there, and then we're going to hear our closing thought, our charge, our takeaway, our charge to go forward. Go ahead. We got you covered on that. Actually, that's going to be our closing okay. thought. So <laughs> we got you. She was eavesdropping on us. She knows. <laughs> Sir. Uh, thank you very much. This has been wonderful to see. Um, my name is Hugo. I'm from Sciatica and, and, and teach in Boston. And my question to the panel is that um, I started in college a, a men's group to, to look towards gender equality. And it's been um, a very illuminating experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to, to, to hear from you the, um, just briefly, and, and maybe you could to your great question, uh, the current research and best practices for reaching um, mainstream, if, if that's the right word, men, 
to help make this happen because um, problems made by men can be solved by men or help to solve by men. Um, and uh, when I came over here, a few of my, my male friends who are of my demographic and race and, and um, economic background, um, uh, they chuckled when I came over and when I said, oh, come here instead of the other men. And uh, that shouldn't happen, happen. And if it happens here, it definitely happens a lot in other communities and campuses mm -hmm. and in South Africa. So mm -hmm. what's your, your sort of uh, take on your, your best strategy I think it's similar to the strategy on gay marriage. Mm. I think one of the reasons gay marriage has made so much progress so rapidly, it still has so far to go, is because of how many people have come to understand that they have gay children and gay brothers and gay sisters and gay friends. And um, uh, the, the piece of research I was thinking about when you were talking is the research that shows that having a daughter moves people to the left politically and having a son moves them to the right politically. <laughs> and on these questions, um, uh, Ibanya Washington at Yale has done some of this work. Others have done it. And um, uh, on these questions, I do think a lot of the things we're talking about are could be considered historically things moving to the left, expansion of, of of rights to, to all people. And so I think one of the important things to keep in mind in this issue is just to remind people as often as possible, in every way possible, that these sorts of, this sorts of discrimination and these sorts of issues doesn't just affect women, but it affects their brothers and their sons and their fathers as well. And it wouldn't hurt if President Obama would not just come out on Father's Day and talk about fathers, but at some point to talk about family and the importance of supporting women. Uh, I mean, I think that there's been this, this ability for folks in this country to marginalize and then refocus this about it's men versus women because there's been this over probably media publicized frame around Obama asking fathers to stand up. We've seen that proliferation. We don't have that around mothers and this call to help women achieve equality. Okay. Why don't we, well, thank you all. Thank you all. And I should have started by saying, I'm sorry, because there's so, we could have heard from everybody in the room. And if I called on everybody in the room, each of you would have had something interesting to say. So I'm sorry we couldn't get to more of your questions, but I love the ones that we had. And with that, I'd love to give each of you an opportunity to close us out in whatever way you'd like to. It, give us a charge. Give us a job. Give us a task. Give us something to think about. And um, so, Joan, I started with you at the beginning, so I'll go the other way. Thank you. David, <laughs> uh, why don't you start? Sure. I'll do two things. I'll try to do them quickly. Uh, one is I do think a reason for optimism. And I would argue do not downgrade the importance of education. Um, uh, I, I disagree that a college degree is less valuable today. The, the pay gap between college graduates and everyone else has reached an all-time high. An all-time high. It's never been higher. <laughs> Women have made enormous progress. That will pay dividends for decades. Um, I think we need to continue encouraging women to go to college and to graduate because I think it will move this issue tremendously. It's no coincidence that men have made no progress in graduating from college over the last 30 years and have also made no progress in their wages. And women have made big progress, and they've made big progress in their wages. So keep pushing on education. That bakes future progress into the cake. David Lee, oh, sorry, is that it? One. Okay, one go ahead, thing. I'm sorry. I would say. I was going to give you your big today. Uh, fight small battles. I think the big policy things matter. I think childcare matters enormously. I think leave matters enormously. But that's really hard for, individual, for us to do individually. Fight small battles in your company. Leave early and tell your colleagues you're leaving early to see your kids, especially if you're a man. Take parental leave and tell everyone that you're taking parental leave. Don't think that the way to advancement is bragging about how you're always working. Brag about the fact that you just left to have dinner with your children. 
These sorts of small things do affect the culture of a place, and they can make a difference, and they can make it easier for parents, which for the time being and for the foreseeable future tends to affect women more than men, succeed in the workplace. David Leonhardt, economics columnist, The New York Times, 2011 Pulitzer Prize winner. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us. Anne? Um, well, this has been a terrific conversation, and Michelle, thank you so much for you know guiding us through this. And the fact that I think we could have stayed here for another few hours and heard from everybody in this room says what an important conversation this is. Mm-hmm. And so my first charge is for all of you to have this um, next time. Let's put it on the opening plenary. If we're not fully optimizing um, 50% of our, our population, our potential, this shouldn't just be an evening series. And I think we have to take this issue a lot more seriously and frame it as an opportunity and with an economic case and with a human face. Because in the last piece is, as we talk about the economy, I think as we're seeing this gap grow, we are fighting for our economic and um, sort of leadership space worldwide. We are also struggling for our heart and soul. Um, the economy that we're building, the formulas that we're working through, is this really who we want to be, men or women? And so I really think this is time for us to reclaim where we are and where we want to go with our voice and our power. And if any of you live in a community where there's a local women's foundation, that's a great place to get involved in an immediate way to get informed on the issues and find a way to get involved. And Mosley, Executive Director, Ascend at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for joining us. Melissa. <laughs> So I would say three things. One, going to what you had asked, um, I would say use our power wisely. So the, how you vote, you know, look at the candidates. We don't often see report cards on their gender equity lens, but that's important. Think about the stores you shop. Think about the stocks you own. Think about the businesses that you employ, or if you're in your own business, who are your suppliers. So I think we've got to just own that, and actually our actions can actually manifest and, and validate what we're talking about. I think the second thing is I don't underestimate this crowd, having been here last year. So these are the people that could talk to President Obama and others. Um, these are the folks that will help drive some of the election campaigns. And I would say use that power. Walk the talk. You know, it, it's no small thing that this was a panel in the evening. How do we actually bring this as part of the core of who we are. This silo effect is what we do every day. We go to work and this is who we are. Then we go home and this is who we are. And this is who we are. We've really got to own our who we are and walk the talk on a regular basis. And, and the final thing I would say is don't underestimate social capital. We've talked a lot about institutions, but I'm very clear that I am where I am because of who I knew. Some are women or some are men. And until we recognize that our success is based on who we know and the networks that we are engaged in, and it's oftentimes a much larger barrier and hurdle for women to break into those more powerful networks, then it's all of our faults. Because every one of us, particularly in this privileged position of Aspen, is part of those networks. And if we don't bring somebody else along or invite them in, then we're perpetuating the problem and not solving this issue. Melissa Bradley is the CEO of Tide. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, I'm going to continue that theme, but from a little bit different angle. I grew up in southwest Arkansas. I am a product, a singular um, product of the Arkansas public school system. I succeeded in spite of that. I got a great, <laughs> a great education, but it was very, very hard to rise above the economic conditions uh, in which I was raised. And I did it. I don't want it to be as hard for young women or young men who are living in southwest Arkansas today. You ask what we could do, what were the specific things we can do. By virtue of being in this room, you all are affluent. The affluent have to stand up for the non-affluent 
in this country. We absolutely have to. I'm so impressed by the millennia generation, but there are a lot of young people in this country who don't consider themselves part of that generation because they don't get the advantages that the affluent have. And if there is a widening economic disparity in this country between the haves and the have-nots, the responsibility to bridge that gap is with the haves, and that's all of us. So thank you, Michelle. Joan Dempsey, Senior Vice President, Louise Allen, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for coming, staying, participating at the end of a very rich day and tiring day. Thank you all so much. Please give you all some time. Thank you, Michelle. Bar still open. <laughs> now you can go. Thank you. It really was a pleasure to meet all of you. I'm so sorry. You have a decent I did. David. I'm playing. Oh my goodness. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Hi. Good to see you. Have we not met? I feel like we did. We did. We and met outside of Rick's tall. office right. when I was doing the yellow yes, yes. thing. Yeah. It's yeah. been a long time. Yeah. You've been great. Thank you. Thank you. I liked your last words. Thank you. Uh, one of my, is this on?